Mark chapter 6 this week, we are going to cover a whole six verses this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And Jesus went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they began to take offense at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And Jesus could do no miracle there, except that he laid hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus was wondering at their unbelief. And he went out to the surrounding villages, and there he was teaching. Father, this morning in your word, We ask that you would accomplish a great work, a great work in us individually. That is, in our hearts, you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would expose in the light that which has been wrongfully hidden in the dark, and that you would just do a sweet work of repentance in our hearts, and also, Lord, that you would do a wonderful work of edification, that you would encourage us where we're downcast and downtrodden and sad. Lord, you know the work that needs to happen in each individual heart with regards to belief and unbelief, and what you want to do, and what we have invited you to do, and what we are, in a sense, forbidding you to do. And Lord, we want to be a people who can honestly pray, Lord, give us all that you have for us, nothing more, nothing less. And we would not only pray that individually this morning, Father, we would ask it corporately. That as a congregation, as a community, as a coastline, you would have your way in us, through us, and around us. That thy will would be done that your kingdom would come, that it would be manifest here on earth as it is in heaven, that you would sovereignly rule and reign in us and through us corporately in this church and community and coastline. And so now, Lord, we believe that the word will be profitable for such things through the correct teaching. And so take control of my mind and my mouth. Let every word that comes from these lips be from you. I confess before my brothers and sisters, I have no wisdom except for that which is from you and your word. And I have nothing to say except for that which is given me by your spirit and your word. So you come, you teach, you accomplish your work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus comes back to Nazareth. If you follow your Bible chronologically, and it's sometimes difficult to do through the Gospels, you can get yourself a chronological Bible, which is a helpful resource. Uh, Reese's chronological Bible is a cool one. If you're able to follow chronologically through the Gospels, you'll realize that this is the second time Jesus has been back in Nazareth since he started his ministry. The last time he was there was one year ago. And he did the same thing. It was a Sabbath and he went into the synagogue and there he was handed the scroll and he opened up to Isaiah and he began to read. And so here he is in his hometown again in the synagogue on the Sabbath teaching from the Word of God. This time he has his disciples with him. 
And some amazing things have transpired since his last encounter with his own people in his hometown. Even in the days preceding this visit, amazing things took place. We read about in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, Jesus getting in the boat with his disciples and saying, let's go to the other side. And that storm arose and Jesus was asleep in the boat. Just a picture of our God being in perfect peace in the midst of our trials and tribulations. And Jesus stood and he rebuked the storm and the storm was calmed it went perfectly still and so everything is cool now and then they get to the other side of the sea of galilee and here comes this naked psychomaniac demoniac possessed by a legion of demons screaming and cutting himself no one in society no one in the community could do anything for him jesus displayed absolute sovereignty over the demons cast them into 2000 swine the swine flipped out and went running off a cliff and drowned in the sea of galilee it was the first example of deviled ham in all the Bible, as we spoke of. And then they get back in the boat and they go to the other side and here comes this man saying, hey, my daughter is dying. It is my only daughter. She's 12 years old. Come and help. And so Jesus and the disciples are heading to the man's house to heal the daughter and they encounter this woman with the issue of blood and she says, if I could just touch the cloak of Jesus, I'll be healed. Sure enough, she makes her way through the crowd as we spoke of last week. She touches the cloak and she's instantly healed. And then Jesus continues on to the house and the girl is already dead when he gets there and he goes and he takes her hand and he says to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she gets up and she's alive and he tells the disciples, now give her some food. It's been an eventful few days. And no doubt in the region of Galilee where these things were taking place, word would travel like wildfire about this possible Messiah who is doing and saying these amazing things. And so here he comes now back into his hometown. Just a few weeks ago, chronologically, Mary and her other children had gone looking for Jesus in Capernaum because they thought he had lost his mind. And now they're back in Nazareth. Jesus shows up. And there he is in the synagogue teaching. And when he's teaching, it seems as though everything else fades away. The accusations of him being crazy, the realization that he grew up in that town, that they'd known him since he was a child, it all fades away. And when Jesus is speaking, the only reaction of the people is that they were astonished. The world faded away. There was nothing they could say to refute his words, amen. They were astonished. They were marveling at what he had to say. It says in verse 2, Where did the man get these things? What is this wisdom and such miracles that we've heard about? Now this is very important. Follow me on this. They recognized that he had performed great miracles. They had heard the stories. They recognized it. They didn't deny it. They were astounded at the things that he had to say. They wanted to know more. Where... Did he get these things? What wisdom is this? How is he performing those miracles? They asked the where, the what, and the how. They were stirred in their hearts when he spoke to at least a curiosity. At least a curiosity, if not a deep hunger. Being a nation who was in wait for the Messiah. At least a curiosity if he spoke, if not a deep hunger. And the last time that he was there, it was the same situation. You might look in Luke chapter 4. Last time he was there, it was the same situation. Luke 4, we'll be flipping back and forth. Again, he was teaching in the synagogue, and it says, 
in verse 22 of Luke 4. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words with which were following from his lips. Stop right there. Everybody's speaking well of him. They're wondering. There's, maybe we could interpret as hungering and thirsting after him. Amazing things. And then something changes everything. In a moment, they go from curiosity to cursing. In a moment, they go from desire to disdain. In a moment, everything was changed. What is it? What came to light in the mind of his hometown people that made them want from curiosity to cursing, from desire to disdain? It's seen here in Luke chapter 4, the last part of verse 22. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And they said it again in Mark chapter 6 as he flipped back there in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Don't we know all his brothers and all his sisters? In other words, isn't this the same kid that grew up with us all here in Nazareth? Isn't this a carpenter? I mean, we've all had yokes built by him or repaired by him. Some of us have chairs in our homes that he made. Some of us have tables that were made by Jesus. Wonderful carpenter that he must have been. We know this guy. And at the moment that they thought they had a certain level of familiarity with him, their astonishment disappeared. At the moment they begin to say, oh, we know what he's all about. The desire turned to sustain. Everything went away because they had with Jesus just a passing knowledge, just a touching familiarity, and not a thorough knowledge. You see, they were intrigued. They might have been entranced. They were maybe even enthralled. But in the end analysis, they were able to say, oh, but we know what this is. We can explain that. I mean, it's just Joseph's son. It's just Mary's son. He's got brothers and sisters. No big deal. In other words, they desired to put Jesus back in the box. They didn't like him out of the box anymore. Because when Jesus came out the box, people got raised from the dead. Oh, no. When Jesus came out the box, people got healed. The deaf began to hear, the blind began to see, and people walked on water. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on? Jesus was out the box. And you see, that was a little uncomfortable for them. A little beyond what they were used to. And so they said, no, 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 no. It's okay. He's just Joseph's son. It's just Mary's son. And amazement turned to unbelief and wonder turned to rejection. And now they, having rejected Jesus, because they say, oh, we know who he is. Let's not get carried away here. We have a touching familiarity. We know who he is. Let's not get carried away. Now that they cease to be amazed, Jesus becomes amazed. I want you to read that with me in verse 6 of Mark 6. And he wondered at their unbelief. He wondered at their unbelief. We know and we understand, don't we Christians, that Jesus is God incarnate. God draped himself in humanity. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. Very profound statement when he says, and he wondered at their unbelief. Just as profound as that statement uh, uh, when he stood over Jerusalem and he wept because of the rejection of Jerusalem of his ministry. Just as profound as him weeping when Lazarus was dead. 
I mean, these are incarnations. These are pictures of us. These are uh, anthropomorphisms, if you will, but in a very, very real sense of the person of Jesus Christ, of the heart of God. The heart of God wept for Jerusalem. The heart of God wait, weeps at the death of man. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he says in Ezekiel 33. And the heart of God is amazed at unbelief. Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus Christ is amazed and astounded at unbelief. There is only one other time in all of the New Testament where Jesus is amazed. And that is at belief or at faith. In Luke chapter 7, verse 9, there was a centurion, the Roman soldier, whose servant was sick. And the centurion is saying, hey, Jesus, you know, you can heal my servant. I know you can. In fact, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house to do it. I know you can, but say the word and he's going to be healed. And Jesus went, it says there in the text that Jesus marveled at this man. And he said, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. So there are only two things in the New Testament that cause Jesus to be amazed. Faith and the lack of faith. He marvels at both of them. He's shocked by him. He's astonished by him. Now speaking of faith. Faith is important because faith is the key to the Christian life, is it not? Faith, first of all, is the key to salvation. It, we are told in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 8, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of works. So faith is important in, in that it is the key to salvation. Secondly, faith is important to the Christian because once we've been saved, we walk by faith, don't we? The Old Testament and the New Testament say repeatedly, we shall walk by faith and not by sight. We don't make decisions according to circumstance. We make decisions according to God's character, God's word, and God's promises. Amen? So faith is important for salvation. Rather, I should say it's necessary for salvation. Faith is necessary for walking according to God's spirit. Faith is necessary for just Christian living. Paul put it wonderfully in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul said that the very core of his being, the very expression of his daily life, was living in faith with Jesus Christ. So it's important for salvation. It's important for walking. I should say it's necessary for these things. It's necessary for living. And it is necessary to please God. Don't misunderstand. We as Christians can and should please God. We don't want to mistake it. We can't make God love us anymore. We don't change the way God feels about us. His love is perfect and total. But we can please Him and do things that are pleasing to Him. Amen? And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. And those who come to Him must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So without faith it is impossible to please God. We can't please God if we don't live by faith, walk by faith, and if we aren't justified by faith. So faith is the key to the Christian life. It is paramount. Get an understanding of what faith and believing means. It is the hope of things unseen, the assurance of things which we haven't seen yet. So faith is the key. But disbelief or the lack of faith is the killer. 
Faith is the key, but disbelief is a killer. We're told in verse 5 of our text. And Jesus could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few and healed them. Matthew, in his parallel account, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, makes it clear for us. It says, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Listen to me now. Jesus showed up in Nazareth totally willing to do radical things. Totally willing to see people transformed, to see people healed, to see people set free. Totally willing to see the kingdom expanded there. Jesus showed up willing to not only do what could be expected of God and of the Messiah, but to do exceeding abundantly. But because of the lack of belief, they heard him and they were astonished, but then they said, oh, we know what this is about. And so they rejected it because of the lack of the belief. He could not do many miracles there. Better said, he would not do many miracles there. Not that he couldn't. Jesus Christ is still omnipotent, Amen. God is all-powerful. It's not as though our faith forbids God from doing something in the sense that He can no longer possibly do it. But in the face of a lack of faith, He chooses not to. It wasn't that He couldn't. not, Not that it was not possible, but He wouldn't. You see, God responds to faith. That's what God responds to. That's clear from the beginning to the end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. God responds to faith. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 9, the two blind men? The blind men yelled out and they said, Have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Because they wanted to see. And Jesus said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say, yes, we do, we believe. And so he responded to them in Matthew 9, 29, be it done to you according to your faith. As much as you are able to believe, thus you shall receive. Be it done to you according to your faith. Now we've got to understand that faith does not force God. There are some those and there are some of those in certain segments of the church that think that they can force God somehow by faith. The Bible doesn't teach that. We can't force God to do anything. Faith does not force God, but faith frees God, that is frees God to move in your life. Faith is permission and invitation. Faith does not force God, it frees God in the sense that faith says, come Lord and do thus and so and the other. I believe you to do so and I want you to do so. Faith is permission and invitation according to his character. Amen? But disbelief, contrary to that, disbelief does not debilitate God. It is not as though it ties the hands of God or makes God incompetent or unable, but rather disbelief denies God. Disbelief is the forbidding and the rejecting of God moving in our lives. It is saying to Him, whether we verbalize it or act it out, No, God, I don't believe your promises. I don't believe your power. I don't trust you with this segment of my life. I'm not going to give you this area and this issue. And so because remarkably enough we see throughout the Bible that God is a gentleman, at that time He does not force His will upon us. There are moments in history where God will be done. Amen, hooray and hurrah. 
But at other times, man's will be done. Poo-poo, oh no, shucks. At other times, man's will be done. And God says, what do you want me to do for you? James said, you have not because you ask not. And if any man asks, let him ask with faith. Because the man who asks doubting is like the waves driven by the wind, just tossed to and fro. You're just a mess, just a double-minded man. We've got to approach God on the basis of faith, believing that He is and that He is able. Anything less is to deny the work of God in our lives, in our situations, in our community, in our families, on this coastline, in the world, to the nations. John Cassian was one of the church fathers in the third and fourth, or I'm sorry, fourth and fifth century. He said this. So the bounty of God is actually curtailed temporarily according to the receptivity of our faith. So the bounty of God is actually curtailed temporarily according to the receptivity of our faith. Not that God's purposes are thwarted, mind you. God is sovereign and God's will ultimately will be done. But the bounty, the abundance, the abounding of grace and the overflowing blessings are curtailed temporarily according to the receptivity of our faith. That should encourage us to have faith. To come to God and say, God, do more. Origen, a church father whom most of you have heard of in the 2nd and 3rd century, said this, Grace works even more powerfully among those who have faith. Not that grace is ever rendered null and void. When we're faithless, He is still faithful. Not that God ceases to work altogether. But, as Origen said, grace works even more powerfully among those who have faith. Remember it said in our text, not that Jesus didn't do any miracles, but He did a few. He laid His hands upon some people and He healed them. Clearly, he was willing and wanting to do more, but the people want to have it. I'm sure that there are people that were just totally satisfied with that. Well, that's what God did today. There were other people who perceiving in their spirit that he was willing to do more, said, yes, praise God for what he did. Oh, but the Lord, maybe he would have done more had we only asked. Had we only had faith. That's our church experience so often. That's the experience of our life so often. We see God doing wonderful things in this congregation, in our individual lives, in our families. But it would behoove us to sometimes ask the question, could God have done more? Was God willing to do exceeding abundantly in that situation? Because Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus and Lazarus got sick. And they sent news to Jesus who was in another village and the news was, hey, Lazarus is sick. And they expected that Jesus would come and heal him. But Jesus tarried where he was a few days longer until Lazarus kicked the bucket, until he was dead. And then Jesus came into town, and then he said, Lazarus, come forth, having to say his name because if he had simply said, come forth, every dead man and woman in Jerusalem would have come forth (laughs) in Israel. He said, Lazarus, come forth. You see, he resurrected from, from the dead. The women would have been satisfied with the healing. Jesus wanted to give them a resurrection. God is able to do exceeding abundantly. Ah, He's so much bigger than we often think. He's so much more gracious. He's so much more willing to give, so much more willing to do than we give him credit for. We sell him and ourselves short. He still loves us. 
He's not mad at us about it. Everything is not ruined now. But he's just able to do more. And sometimes you're saying, God, heal this. And he's saying, no, no, wait a minute, man. I want to breathe brand new life into it. And he will do so by his compassion. Luckily, thankfully rather, for the people in Nazareth at this time, Christ's compassion was bigger than their unbelief. Christ's compassion was bigger than their unbelief, and he still healed some people. But there could have been more. A lack of faith, a disbelief, robs God's people and the church of Christ of his highest blessings. It just robs us. We just get gypped. We get ripped off a little bit. But more than that, and upon my heart this morning is this idea, that unbelief is really a slap in the face of God. Unbelief, not trusting God in certain situations. Whatever it might be, just make it personal to your life. Maybe it has to do with a guy or a girl, you high schoolers that just graduated. Maybe it's got to do with what college am I going to go to? Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's what you're hoping God to do in the kingdom at this time. Whatever it is in your life. Disbelief is really a slap in the face of God. Let me illustrate to you. What if I went to my wife and I said, Oh, sweetheart, I love you so much. Tonight, it's you and me. I'm going to take you out to a wonderful dinner. Wherever you're going to go, wherever you want to go, I'm just going to bless you tonight and I'm going to take you out. Now, what if she said to me, I don't believe it. What? Britt, you've never let me down before. Anytime you say you're going to take me out, you always take me out. But now I just don't believe it. I'm not going to receive it. No, I'm not going to get dressed up. No, I won't go. I say, what are you talking about? What if she were to look me in the face and say, Britt, I don't believe you. What would be the next words out of my mouth? Honey, do you think I'm a liar? What have I done? Sweetheart, how have I betrayed your trust? Honey, you got to tell me. If I let you down in some way, you got to tell me. I love you so much. This kills me that I would invite you to dinner and you, my bride, would say to me, no, I don't believe it. I won't go. Sweetheart, tell me where I failed you, please. It would be such a wound in my heart and a slap to my face. And so it is to God when we, his bride, say to him, no, God, I won't go. No, God, I won't dress for that. I won't prepare for that. I won't ask for that. I won't receive that. I'm not going to step up to that table. That was the nation of Israel and more specifically the kingdom of Judah during the time of Jeremiah. And God asked a rhetorical question of them. What have I done wrong? Where did I fail you guys that you run from me and not to me? The obvious answer is God has never failed. God's track record is perfect. He's batting a thousand. And his past record ought to be our future assurance. And so we need to be mindful of relating to him as the bridegroom, the husband and us being the bride, and honor him in that. And when God reveals something to us, when God calls us to something, when God is asking us to lay something down, don't you think we just ought to respond in faith and say, God, I trust you? Is it going to be hard, saints? Absolutely, it's going to be hard. That's why it's called faith. 
It's the belief in things we don't see. The assurance of things hoped for. We don't see it. We don't know exactly how it's going to work out. That's why it's called faith and not television. There's a vast difference. Yes, it'll be difficult. But without faith, we cannot stand. We cannot walk. We cannot come to the Lord. We cannot please Him. Hebrews chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Wonderful passage here. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Take care. Be alert, be aware, be careful. Lest there should be in any one of you, he's speaking to Christians, an evil, unbelieving heart as those in Nazareth had that day, and falling away from the living God. Rather, in verse 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That verse is so important for body life, body meaning the body of Christ. So important for body life. There are so many heartbreaks and grievings and hard situations that will happen in the body. And sometimes all that we can say to a brother is, man, keep the faith. God is able. God is faithful. God is good. God will deliver. If God be for you, who can be against you? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. What can separate us from the love of God? Can trials, tribulations, persecutions, nakedness, distresses, peril? No. I am convinced, therefore, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Just keep the faith, man. I know it hurts. I know it's hard. I know you don't understand. I know you don't have clarity, but you've got to keep the faith. That's what it says to do here. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. That would be today. Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because Satan always deceives. Satan will do the same thing to you that he did to Eve. What did he do to Eve? He showed up and he deceived her. He said, Eve, come on, Eve. Eve, you look like a smart girl. Eve, hath God really said... Because God simply said, Eve, don't eat from this tree. Every other tree in the garden you can eat from. They were good trees. And God said, just don't eat from this tree. That's not too much to ask. But the grass is always greener, huh? And so we fall into temptation. We all get at the Eve complex. We want that which we do not have. We neglect what we have and we want what we don't have. How evil is the heart of man. Easy pray for Satan. Satan came and said, Eve, I've seen you checking this tree out here. You don't don't like that tree anymore? You don't like that one? You can have this one, Eve. Oh, no, 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 I, I can't. You see, God said, don't eat of this tree because in the day that we eat of it, we shall surely die. Oh, Eve, come on now. Hath God really said that? Is that really what he meant? God only said that because he knew that in the day you ate of the tree, that you would become as he is. You would become as God. You would become wise. 
And so when Eve saw that it was pleasing to the eyes and able to make one wise, she ate. She was deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Abraham, oh Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old. And God said to him, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He was fatherless. I mean childless, excuse me. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son, a son named Isaac, the promised son. Abraham was 75 years old. He said, amen, hooray, I believe you, God. And then 11 years went by. 11 years. That's like three quarters of my life. 11 years went by. 11 years. 11 years. And after 11 years, Abraham, he just began to reason. You know, he just began to say, I'm 86 now. I don't see how I'm going to be the father of a great nation. I'm 86. You know, my wife and I, were just not that active anymore. And it just seems, it just seems, I don't know. It just, it seems, it, it seems difficult. And so Sarah, Sarah, his wife, began to reason with him. And she said, you know what? I agree with you. Abraham, why don't you go ahead and take my maidservant, Hagar. And you go and have relations with Hagar. And so Abraham, moron that he was, went and had relations with her servant Hagar. And they had Ishmael. Ishmael. Ishmael is a proverbial work of the flesh. That which God did not tell him to do. It was Abraham taking into his own hands the promise of God. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that Satan was right there saying the same things he said to Eve. Did God really say? Did he really say he'd make you a great nation and that it had to come through Sarah? I mean, think about it. I mean, look at her, Abraham. She is old. You're no spring chicken. Did God really say, don't you think you should help God? Help God. Yeah, that's right. My grandma said God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Not realizing that that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Abraham said, yeah, I should help God. This makes perfect sense. No, it didn't, you moron. It makes perfect sense to just trust God to do what He said He was going to do. It didn't make sense to eat of the forbidden fruit. It didn't make sense to go into Hagar and to have Ishmael. None of it made sense. The only thing that made sense was to trust God because He's faithful. That's why we need to encourage one another because Satan tells us the same lies that he told Eve continually. Every trial that we encounter, Satan is there trying to lie. He is the mocker the deceiver, the liar. That's why we need each other's encouragement. I need you to come to me and say, keep the faith. I need to come to you and say, keep the faith. We need to do it to each other. So it says here, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So we need to be on guard of unbelief. It is the oldest sin of the world, as we spoke of in the garden. It is the most ruinous of all sins in its consequences. It brought the fall of man and subsequently death into the world. It is unbelief, that sin that kept Israel out of Canaan. What more have God, could God have done to prove himself to Israel? And yet they get to the promised land and God is ready to deliver it. And they just say, I don't know, it just seems a little scary. We don't want it. And so they wandered for 40 years. Mark 16, 6 says this, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Be on guard, Christian and non-Christian alike, against disbelief. 
And so now we're going to talk briefly about how to be on guard against disbelief. And I have come up with three F's for you this morning. Three F's this morning on how to guard against disbelief or what to be aware of. First, we ought to be aware of familiarity. And uh, though we can't pronounce it, we'll speak of it in a moment. Secondly, we need to be aware of finality. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And thirdly, we need to be aware of fear lest there be found in any one of us an evil and unbelieving heart. First, familiarity. They said about Jesus in our text, isn't this the carpenter? In other words, he's saying these wonderful things. He's done these amazing miracles, but isn't he just the carpenter? We know who he is. They had just a passing familiarity with him. This is often the problem for the Christian who has gone to church all their life. The Christian who's grown up in church. It seems that they somehow have become, if I could say this, too familiar with the things of God. They haven't kept aware in their hearts. They haven't guarded against lukewarmness, against a lackadaisical attitude. They've kind of grown up in the church or they've been coming to church for a long time and now that familiarity is working against them. J.C. Ryle said this, Let us go on watching our hearts, even after we have believed. The root of unbelief is never entirely destroyed. We have only to leave off watching and praying, and a rank crop of unbelief will soon spring up. No prayer is so important as that of the disciples who pray, Lord, increase our faith. Would anybody have the humility to testify this morning of the danger of growing up in church, of going to church too long, and that familiarity which ought to work for us now somehow working against us, just becoming too used to the things of God, no longer enchanted and enthralled with who He is? Well, first of all, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of Christ, it says in Romans ten seventeen. And so listen to me now. If you're growing cold, if you're growing lukewarm, man, you need to read the Bible. I'll tell you what, you get up before dawn and you get alone, you, your Bible, the Holy Spirit, a pencil and paper, and it's impossible to grow lukewarm. You get up before dawn. Mark my word. You challenge me on this. You get up before dawn on a consistent basis. You, the Holy Spirit, your Bible, a pencil, and a paper. I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care if you've been going to church back with Peter. It is impossible to grow lukewarm and lackadaisical in your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. But we're aware that it is human nature to, number one, forget, and number two, get flabby. It is human nature to, number one, forget, and number two, get flabby. What happens to all of us as we age? I'm with you. I'm 32 now. I'm with you. It is human nature. We begin to forget things, don't we? Oh, I see you old people like, no. You forgot that you forget. You forgot so much. It's human nature to forget and it's human nature much to my chagrin to grow a little bit flabby. It just happens. Can we all please start a new trend right now and say it's okay? Can we? I've seen pictures of the medieval times when it was desirable just to have a little bit of just extra skin, 
Can we go back to that as a congregation and everybody say it's okay? We all get a little flabby as we age. All right? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad I got that off my chest. In fact, we'd like to go so far as to say, if you're too skinny, you need to eat some food. We'd like to reverse it entirely. That would be biblical because it would go against human nature. So, anyway, it is human nature to be forgetful and flabby. That is why when Peter wrote to the church, he said, I seek to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter wrote to the church and said, I'm not going to tell you anything new, but I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder because I'm sure you forgot all the stuff Paul told you. We've got to be reminded. The Bible, if you were to take the Bible and you were to just, just cut out, just, just look and see what is new information, about that much of that big book is new information. The rest of it is that information being reiterized, exemplified, illustrated, reiterated, and repeated. Why? Because we forget. That's why it's important to read the whole Bible because God will tell you over and over again. Not only do we need to be reminded, but we need to exercise. Oh, man. We need to exercise. Physically, we're all going to let ourselves go. We agreed. But spiritually, we cannot do that. We did agree, right? Pinky promise. Somebody pinky promise. We agreed. Okay. We're just going to let ourselves go physically. But spiritually... We can't do that. Pinky promise. We can't do that spiritually. We cannot do that spiritually. Spiritually, we must exercise. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, physical exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, both in this life and in the life to come. So if you want to, in your spiritual life, not forget and not grow flabby in your spirituality, you've got to be reminded frequently in the Word of God and you've got to exercise your faith. If you don't exercise your faith, it will get flabby and cold. If you exercise, if you frequently step out in faith and trust God, your faith will be fit. Amen? It's interesting that Jesus was dishonored and disbelieved by those who knew Him best. Those who had seen Him grow up for 30 years, they are the ones who dishonored and disbelieved Him. That is often the plight of the person who has grown up in the church. But through exercise and reminder, that doesn't have to be the case. I present for your approval the seraphim. Remember the seraphim? We have funny pictures of angels in our mind. We think they're these cute little things with these little wings and they're just lovely. Read the Bible someday, please. Angels are either extremely freaky in their appearance or terrifying. And in Isaiah chapter 6, there were the seraphim. The seraphim. The seraphim have six wings. With two they fly, that's good. With two they cover their feet, with two they cover their eyes. Why? Because they're in the presence of God. They don't dare look upon Him, and it is holiness, so they cover their feet. Even as God said to Moses, remove your shoes, you're on holy ground. And these seraphim, though they have been in the presence of God for eternity past, and will be in the presence of God for eternity to come. They never get used to it. There is never a detriment in their familiarity. They've grown up in church, so to speak, for all of eternity, and yet they are still singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they don't sing it like most churches. Holy, holy, holy merciful and mighty God in three persons blessed trinity 
That's how most of the church sings. They don't sing it like that. It says in Isaiah chapter 6 that when they sang it, the foundations of the temple shook. In other words, their voices were very loud. They were very zealous for their God, though they were in His presence for all of eternity. You see, there's nothing in the Bible that says familiarity has to work against you. It ought to work for you. But we need to be on guard. It's just the same with our husbands and our wives. The more we know them, the more we ought to love them. For the unbeliever, a sense of perceived familiarity keeps them from salvation. They could be just like the people in Nazareth, right? Just like the people. They could have heard the wonderful works of God. They may have even seen the transformed lives. And at the end they say, oh, I know what that Jesus thing is all about. I don't have to be worried about that. Oh, I heard that. Or I grew up, I went to Sunday school. Or I took a religious studies class. Or someone told me about that once. And their perceived familiarity keeps them from salvation. Very dangerous thing to say, oh, I know about Jesus. I don't have to worry about that. Because that is a statement that speaks of and smacks of finality. Our second F. We move now from familiarity to finality. Finality. In other words, having made up our mind about Jesus and who He is. For the non-believer, for the non-Christian, it is a dangerous thing to do. To say, oh, I understand God and who He is. I don't got to worry about Jesus. And what's this whole cross thing? And what's this whole I got to repent and come to Him and be forgiven thing? Hey, listen. If you're here today and you haven't received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and you've made up your mind about that and you say, hey, I know about that. I don't need that. Please, I am begging you, just be sure of that. Because the Bible declares if you, are, if you believe, you shall be saved. If you don't believe, you are condemned. It is the difference between heaven and hell. And so finality is very important with regards to unbelief for the non-believer. Please, if you're going to reject Jesus Christ, you need to be educated. You need to have read the Bible several times. You need to have done a thorough comparative study of the claims of Jesus Christ and the claims of any other religious leader in the whole world. You ought to have interviewed at least a hundred people. You ought to have done a thorough investigation because he claimed to be the only way to heaven. And if you're going to reject it, you're going to do so knowing that he rose from the dead on Easter. And you had better know what you're talking about. But what about finality with regards to the Christian? Here's how it works with the Christian. The Christian often wants God to stay in that little box. We say, well, this is how God does it, and this is when He does it. And we just want God to be comfortable for us. We just want Him to continue to do the same things. And that begins to work against us in our spirituality. And it begins to lend itself to unbelief. Because now if God moves in some profound way, we're so quick to discount it and say, I don't believe that. I'm not talking about things that are beyond the Bible. The Bible is the full revelation of God. God is never going to go beyond the Bible, but we ought to expect Him to do all that is in the Bible. Amen? And yet so many of us put Him in a little box. And we say, this is how He does it, and this is when He does it. That's a danger of a decision of finality for the Christian. Also, the Christian begin, can begin to think that they have arrived. Well, I've been a Christian for a long time, and this is it. This is good. This is me. I'm here. Paul the Apostle says, Brothers, I don't claim to have arrived yet in Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 14. 
I don't claim to have laid hold to it yet, but one thing I do, I'm forgetting the junk that lies behind and I'm pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even Paul said, I don't have it all together in my Christianity. That's so good. And Isaiah 55, 11 is very important for the Christian to remember. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God is able to fulfill his every word and his ways are higher than our ways. Christians, we ought to read the Bible and then we ought to cling to that promise and then hold God accountable to it. Oh, wow, that's faith. Lastly, fear. Fear. Fear for the believer It's the same idea of God being in the box. We just don't want to get outside of our comfort zone. And so fear lends itself to unbelief. Let me just tell you how it works. It works the same way in me as it does in you. We know we ought to share the Lord with someone, a co-worker or something like that. We know we ought to do it. We know it's the right thing. It'd be good for them. It'd be good for us. It'd be good for the kingdom of God. But because we're afraid, we say, oh, they don't want to hear it. Oh, they'll never get saved. What? Didn't you get saved? How'd you get saved? Did somebody tell you? Did somebody tell you? Or was there a billboard delivered to your house one morning? <laughs> no, it was a person. A person came and told you. See, that person had faith and not fear. Faith and not fear. They said, hey, this person needs to know about Jesus. And I believe that they'll get saved because God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so God will call us to get outside of our comfort zone, which will work against fear and for faith. For the non-believer, the non-believer has fear that lends to unbelief because they're afraid of changing or having to give things up. If I come to God, if I trust God, I'm going to have to give up this and that and I'm going to be changed in this area. And so what they rather say is, I don't believe in God. Everybody believes in God. That's a lie. Everybody believes in God. God makes sure of it. They are just unwilling to confess it because they want to live the way they want to live. It is not for lack of evidence. It is not for lack of God not revealing himself. God has revealed himself sufficiently, but they don't want to change their gig, and so they refuse to believe. So we've got to be on guard of familiarity, finality, and fear, lest there be found in any one of us an evil and unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. And here's the last thing I'm going to say is this. Remember I told you, that it was a year prior that Jesus was in Nazareth. What happened the last time he was there? At first they were excited, and then when they remembered, this is just Joseph's son, they got upset, they had too much of just a passing familiarity, they were afraid of having to get outside their comfort zone, and so they took Jesus to a high cliff and they sought to throw him off. They wanted to murder Jesus in Nazareth that last time he was there a year ago. They rejected him wholly. Jesus could have shook the, feet off, the dust off his feet and never returned. Jesus came back to give him a second chance. I hope you see that this morning. Jesus came back in our text, Mark chapter 6, to give him a second chance. He came right back to the same town, to the same synagogue, and was preaching the same things. He gave him a second chance. What I don't know is whether or not this was the last time Jesus ever went to Nazareth. What you don't know this morning is whether or not this is the last time that God will ever offer you salvation. 
Because we are not promised tomorrow, friends. There is no promise of tomorrow. I am shocked as we are at the frequency and the suddenness of the death of loved ones. Death never ceases to surprise us. We are not promised tomorrow. We have today. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Today is a day to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Don't say, oh, I know that Jesus thing. Don't do that. Don't make up your mind and have a bad decision this morning. Don't be driven by fear. Know that God loves you and that he is for you and that through his son dying upon the cross, he offers you forgiveness this morning and brand new life. All you need to do is receive it. If you're going to reject it, I hope that you can look me and the others in the face and say, I read the Bible five times. I did a comparative study. I interviewed 100 Christians. It's not for me. If you made the decision with any less evidence than that, you made a bad, foolish, ignorant, uneducated decision. But this morning, God is here wanting to forgive you. And he's wanting to deal with our every problem. Is your marriage a mess? God wants to deal with it. Are your kids wayward this morning? Is it a family situation? Is it the finances? Is it the ambiguity? God is willing to deal with it this morning. He's the God of second chances, amen? Third chances, amen? Fourth, amen? Fifth, amen? Sixth, amen? Seven, amen, which is a number of completion, so we'll stop there. But I'll tell you, it's more than 70 times seven, amen? God, we thank you for your faithfulness for your goodness, who is like our God, that you would reach out to us time and time again, over and over again. This morning, Lord, I just pray that you'd be knocking upon that heart that at one time rejected you and you'd simply be saying, here I am again and I still love you and I still want to forgive you and I still want you to know me. And I pray that if you're knocking upon any heart this morning saying that, that that heart would simply open now and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Be my Savior. I repent of my sins. And that it would be a meaningful, real decision, a true committing of themselves to you. We know that when that happens, the angels in heaven rejoice. And for the dear saints here this morning, God, just minister to our hearts as we sing your name, that you are able to deal with our every problem. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Increase our faith. If we had just the faith of a mustard seed, we could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would do so. Give us the faith of a mustard seed this morning. Though it be small, it is living and growing and active. Increase our faith this morning as we surrender our burdens. It's your faithful name.